From the boardroom to the locker room, sport captures the imagination like little else. In this podcast, we talk to the men and women who make the big decisions and those who make the big plays to find out where sport is and, importantly, where it's going. But we do so through the only eyes that matter, those of the fan. Welcome, everybody, sorry about that, <laughs> to another edition of Goal Alone Goal. Joining me as always, this time live, is my main man, Roger Mitchell. Hi, Roger. Hi, Grant. How are you? How are you? Mate, I am very, very well indeed. I am very well indeed. I'm just trying to tweet this link out because uh, the Twitter gods are not being kind to me, sadly. Uh, let me see yeah, if I can as do I was that. Just, as you're doing that, I was just thinking, you know, like, we do these things once a month. And you know what I do, I'm sure you're just the same as like as the month goes on, I kinda note all the things I'm gonna bring up when it's goal on goal, all the funny and quirky stuff. And by the time the month has passed, I've got about four pages of stuff. And of course, this week I've just taken them and thrown them in the bin. <laughs> because Listen, Rog, it, I, yeah, I mean it's it's not you're right. It's just uh there's a lot of stuff going on this week and not much of it's funny, unfortunately. And, and, and of course, a lot of it touches sport um, and we'll get into that. Yeah. No doubt. But I think, first of all, uh, I think you've got a bit, of, a bit of housekeeping, right? A bit of an update for us? Yeah, my goal, because I think mainly we're going to be talking about own goals today. My goal is, is um, our mate Chris Cairns. I know you went down and saw him personally. This guy is an amazing guy, Grant. You know, and why I want to say that is this. So, like, he calls me up. Um, at the start of the week, he says, look, we need to get back into, you know, the modelling I've done for smart sports. And then so we got on a call and he's telling me about, you know, what's happening and some investors and we're putting a date together and everything like that. Uh, and um, I'm just thinking to myself, and this should be said, really, you know, Chris and smart sports started three years ago and nobody had heard the phrases Web3 and Metaverse. And his vision for smart sports is exactly that. And, you know, uh, he's had these issues that have kind of like cost him one or two delays. But, you know, the guy's sitting there in a wheelchair and he's on to me, you know, and he's like, you know, look at line, you know, 12 of the Excel and is this the right assumption? I mean, the, the grit and the determination is astonishing, Grant. It's just astonishing. Yeah, I mean, look, I um, I went down to Canberra uh, a week before last to, to have lunch with Chris, and um, he, Rod, he's remarkable. He's 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 so immensely strong and in such good spirits. It was uh, I, I, it was truly humbling to spend a few hours in the pub with him, having a few beers and talking about the world and talking about you know all the things that happened to him. But you know, we didn't dwell on that, and and he had so much other stuff he wanted to talk about. And he is, he's an inspirational figure for me and for many, many other people in terms of how you handle adversity. It's, it's extraordinary. And, um, you know, I, I commend him for that. And, and I think we all wish him uh, yeah. further tremendous progress in his recovery, which is, um, which is coming on leaps and bounds. You've seen the tweets, no doubt, this week with the, the robot exoskirts yeah. and there's all kinds of stuff going on. I mean, it's just, it's just incredible. It really is incredible. What a, what a, what a terrific guy. Yeah, and in the middle of all that, you know, he gets this new news about bowel cancer and he just brushes it off, turns it into a positive. Yeah. Just just, yeah. just unbelievable. And so I wanted yeah. to start no, I wanted it, to start today with that. Well, it's, it's going to be tough to tough to get any goals that are going to be uh, bigger than that. But as you say, we're probably going to be talking about own goals mostly this week. I I, I have to start with a goal, Roger, and I'm I'm going to I'm going to give uh, a goal to Michaela Moore, the New Zealand female soccer player who <laughs> had uh, a game against the number one team in the world, the United States women's team, uh, where she scored a hat-trick in the first yeah. 35 minutes, which is just remarkable. Uh, she played against Leeds. Was it against Leeds? She, it, was <laughs> <laughs> no, she will, though. She, she plays for Liverpool. Um, but, uh, yeah, they were, they were all own goals, unfortunately. And that's the first hat-trick of own goals I've seen. It was a perfect hat-trick, left foot, right foot, and a header. Yeah. Um, and all that. of them actually, if 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 they'd been if she'd been a striker, they were all really good finishes. They were good. They were say. good. So I, look, I felt I had to give her a goal just to to put one back on the positive <laughs> column instead of making that one another own goal. It would have been added insult to her injury. But you know, Rog, it's um, it, it's funny. I, I don't know about you, but I, I've never seen a hat trick of own goals before. I'm sure it must have happened, but don't not so. that not that I've ever seen. 
you know, she she got substituted five minutes after the third goal went in. You know, her, her head just wasn't in it. She was substituted after 41 minutes. 30 minutes yeah, too no, late. Exactly, exactly right. <laughs> exactly right. I mean, what a what an absolute shocker. But um, as I thought about it, I just thought this is just one of the fantastic things about sport. You know, this, this girl, it's one game in a career, right? But she is now going to be the answer to a trivial pursuit question for the rest of her life. And there's something noble in that, Rog. I mean, it could happen to any of us, right? It could happen to any of us that we could that this could happen. It's just, it's just a bizarre Grant. You're situation. You're always very generous. No, I am. I am You're very generous. Very... Why, Did why you not? see the third what, own what, goal? God, the third tell... one. I mean, like, geez. Was I that mean... the header? Was that the head of the no, third? No, no, it was the one that went off the side of oh, us. The... Yeah, okay. Yeah, no, she's not coming come, back. Come from on, that, then. Mate. come on. Let's see. Come on. No, I'm just saying she's not coming back from that. She's not. It's over. You are over, such a miserable bastard. You really are, honestly. Listen to you. God, the poor woman. Come on, what do you got for me this week? Right, okay, right, let's, get, let's, let's get into the first stone goal, um, which has got to be Phil Mickelson. Ah, um, yes, I had this one, of course. Yeah, um, now I'm going to, and I think this is going to be all of this episode, I'm going to be more asking you than, than having an opinion. Now, um, there's a lot in this story. Um, there is the whole thing about Phil himself, his personality, where he is in life, because I'm not sure he's in a great place personally. You know, um, we've all known the stories about the insider trading, the gambling debts. You know, I even heard when I was doing some research about this, I saw some stuff about he's a swinger, or apparently him and his wife are swingers, and there's a Michael Jordan episode in there as well. You know, so... Um, <laughs> uh, Phil, as a personality, probably is in the wrong place at the wrong time for everybody that wants to see something happening with the world of golf. Um, and he gives this interview uh, that he claims is off the record, but clearly wasn't off the record. What's his name? Shipnuck, the, the, the author. Alan Shipnuck, yeah who's, a, yeah, who's a superb journalist. Superb. And he put out a piece afterwards to explain it where it's a very fair piece. You know, he's talking about Phil, talking about the, the kind of nonsense he's come out with since, and also talking about why in some ways it's a bit of a shame that um, this whole project is maybe going down with Phil because um, he feels that himself there is a need for some kind of like refreshing of the menu in professional golf. Uh, so, you know, um, this is another example, just like the Super League of, you know, an idea that had apparently 20 guys signed up. They were about to announce mid-March big fanfare, um, somebody comes out, uh, in this case it was Phil Mickelson, and in the Super Leagues it was uh, Agnelli and Florentino Perez. And, and the, the, the similarities are amazing, Grant. You, you, you're much more on, on the traditional side than me on this. How did you read all this and, and, and where do we go from here now? There's one huge difference between the Saudi Golf League, the SGL, and the Super League in football. Um, and that is the fact that these are individuals, individual contractors, let's call them, Rog. There's no boards making decisions. There's no club chairman desperate for money. There's none of that stuff going on. This is a bunch of individual guys who are already fabulously wealthy with huge sponsorship contracts. They're playing for massive prize money. And more importantly, perhaps for most of them, they're playing for their own legacy within the game, right? And I think anyone who grows up playing golf, you can't, you can't play golf particularly at that level, without having an appreciation for the history of it, the tradition of it, and, and the records. You know, any golfer knows all the records. We all know Tiger's majors. We all know Jack's majors. We all know all that stuff. And so they're playing for a lot more than money. They just happen to be able to become extraordinarily rich. So I think it is very different to the Super League because if you think about it and you listen to the comments of Rory and Colin Morikawa and Brooks Kepka and a lot of the leading players who all said, there's just no way we're going to do this. You know, Rory, as always, tremendously outspoken, pulled no punches. God bless him. Mm -hmm. He's, uh, God bless he's him. such a he's such an honest he's such an honest soul. You know, he, he just can't mm -hmm. he, he just can't help but wear his heart in his sleeve and, and call it like it is. You know, so so they're not going to get the top players, and and I honestly don't think that showing them a hundred million dollar contract is going to do it because as we've seen with Phil this week. They'll get a hundred million dollar contract to play the Saudi Tour. They'll lose all their sponsors, as Phil has done this week. And for the top players in the world, that's probably a hundred million bucks, give or take. Let's you know, let's face it. So I I think I, look, I'm never going to say the Saudi Golf League is dead, 
because obviously these things tend not to die. But I think it's going to have a much, much, much harder chance of coming back again, like Glenn Close did in Fatal Attraction, than the than the European Super League, Roger. I, I think that will be back, and I think it'll ultimately be successful. But this one, they picked the wrong sponsors uh, and the wrong players in the wrong game at the wrong time, and, and I think um, I think it's really going to struggle. But you know, that, that, that being said, let's, let's let's get back to talking about Phil. I mm-hmm. mean, it's difficult to imagine a way he could have screwed this last couple of weeks up more. I'm mm-hmm. trying to think of a way he could have done it worse, and and I'm struggling to come up with anything. You know, he, he gives the interview with Shipnook. Um, and, and I'm certain it's not off the record. You can tell by the no, half-hearted attempt Phil made of saying it was off the record. It wasn't. You know, Shipnook's reported it. Uh, the language Phil's used, um, you know, calling the Saudis scary mofos and criticising them for the Khashoggi murder and, you know, basically cutting them off on the one hand just after he'd alienated the PGA Tour, then in that same interview saying that, you know, he was only talking to the Saudis to gain leverage yeah. Against the PGA Tour at the in the same week that he called he called out the PGA Tour for their obnoxious greed. Yeah, you know, it's it's absolutely unbelievable that he could screw this up so so many ways. You know, Shipnook's tweet was great when he came in after Phil said it was off the record. He came out and very very quickly and succinctly put him down. And then you you know for us watching, we just sit back and wait for the inevitable. And sure enough, one by one, Phil's sponsors peel away from him. You know, we have Workday pulled away, American Express have now pulled away, and KPMG pulled away. Interestingly, Callaway, who have a lifetime endorsement deal with him, have quote-unquote paused their association with him, right? Which um, which is an interesting term, and perhaps more honest than most of the others, because you know as well as I do, we've spoken yeah. about this before, when things like this happen, it's a case of, all right, quick, run away, and then keep peeking out from behind the curtain when it's all died down. You know, maybe we can come back again and... and and renegotiate another contract on more favorable terms for us. So yeah, look, Phil's Phil screwed this up horrendously. It'd be interesting, you know. He he didn't play in Phoenix, which is uh, right next to where he went to school, Arizona State University. He didn't play at Riviera, which is one of the most prestigious tournaments on the tour, and somewhere I think he's played for the last sixteen odd years. And now there's talk that we won't see him again until the Masters. And I look, it, he he's not going to get a bad reception at the Masters because it's just not that sort of place. But um, the media storm that he's going to have to face the next time he shows his face on the tour is going to be unbelievable. So, um, you know, you know, I've never been a huge fan of his. I've always thought he was a bit of a phony and, and, and I kind of watched all this unfold and it really confirmed much of what I kind of thought about him behind the scenes. But what is it that you think, do you, do you think he's he's got some kind of like personality issues or is it just hubris or... You know, because those the stories, if you if you if you dig into them, they're they're, they're you know Callaway kind of like paid off his gambling debt, you know, all that kind of stuff. What's the reality, Grant? Rog, none of us know, right? I mean, obviously, none of us know. But but I think he's um, I think he's always had this you know smiling face, thumbs up persona. Um, you know, I've heard anecdotal evidence from people who've who've been around him in person that say that's not who he is off the course. There's plenty of uh, talk about the gambling stuff. There's plenty of stories if you want to go looking for them um, about all that. I, look, I don't know, Rog. I, I, I haven't met him. I don't know. I know people that have, and, and the reports I've had are not not so complimentary. But um, he's going to be tried in the court of public opinion now. And the years he spent building up uh, a, a good rapport with the public, whether fake or not, is going to be tested sorely, you know, when, when he comes back from this or tries to come back from this. It'll be very interesting to see how easily uh, the public forgive him or whether they won't. Um, I have a feeling he's going to he's gonna be in a real struggle when he comes back. Mm. Yeah, uh, okay. So let's. I'm going to read you something now from this uh, interview that Shipnook did after all of this, where and it's a great, great article, where, where the, the, the question is, if it wasn't the Saudis and it was somebody more acceptable that was backing this, let's call it a breakaway league, would that have gone better? The answer is, what you're describing is the Premier Golf League, blah, 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 blah. Um, the Premier Golf League had a cool schedule lined up all around the world. I think it would have been a great product. And if it could have been free of the taint of Saudi money, it would have been well received as a fresh take on professional golf. So this is this is coming back to what 
taking Phil out of this, taking even the Saudis out of this and coming back to what is the general point that we always talk about is, you know, the role of the governing body. And this is where the Super League is exactly the same as this. What happens um, uh, in UEFA? UEFA sell the big clubs. That's where they get their money from, from those games. And they distribute it to smaller clubs and to other federations. But crucially, they take a lot in expenses as well. These are expensive organisations with guys and girls on big salaries. I don't think if you put it in the terms of from what I'm spending uh, for the centre, okay, I can maybe get my head around the redistribution, foster the game. I can get my head around that because I'm a nice guy. But I can't get my head around the fact that the centre, the governing body, whatever you want to call it, PGA UEFA, they're not that good. They're extremely expensive and they're just throwing their weight around in an, a monopolistic way. It's the same with you get with FIFA. You try and do something, they start saying you can't do this, you can't do that. I think something like the Nigerian or the Zimbabwean FA, the government has got involved and they've immediately banned Zimbabwe from um, playing. That's their tactic. So what I'm saying is, are these governing bodies not just kind of like fluffy, fat-laden, kind of like monopolists that... Um, and, and that Greg Norman has got a point. Is there not something in that? You know, it's a, it's a, this is a fair question, Rog. I think the PGA Tour is a little different, right? It's a charity for a start, uh, so it is different to FIFA and UEFA. I think also the, the PGA Tour has done a phenomenal job in increasing the amount of money that its players can earn. You know, you, you look at this conversation, we spoke about this on, on the show, I think, last time out, about the rights issues that Phil was talking about, right, which is which is a, a fair point. But Giles made the point uh, when we talked about this on The Groundsman that without the PGA Tour, and let's be honest, without Tiger Woods, frankly, none of these guys would be playing for anywhere near the money they're playing for. The PGA Tour has done a tremendous effort in publicising the game, broadening the game, making it more appealing. And and they're kicking on with that. You know, the European Tour, I, I think, is doing an even better job than the PGA Tour in terms of making golf as accessible and a lot of the social media content that we've talked yeah. about in the past, yeah. Roger. So, so I think the PGA Tour, I think it is different to FIFA and UEFA. You know, FIFA and UEFA are run by a, a bunch of bloated bureaucrats who are all on the take, let's face it. They're taking every penny they can get out of it it's corrupt there's bribes there's all kinds of stuff going on with that which i you know i don't think you're seeing that at the uh at the pga tour at all so i so i think there is a difference okay. in terms of this this idea that it might be a refreshment that the game needs i'm happy to have that argument i think there's some merit to it i think golf is a very different game to football to to some of the other uh, sports that you've talked so eloquently about, about the need to change it. And, and, I, and I was fascinated with your conversation in jars with Simon Barnes last week, you know, which unfortunately I, I wasn't able to join at the time. And I know, I, I, know, I see you laughing and shaking your head there because you know exactly what I'm coming to. But, you know, when, when Simon talked about, you know, are you interested in the finances, are you interested in preserving the soul of the game? Um, I was just to the car. And I was literally punching the air. <laughs> Come on, that's that's my boy Simon. I wish I wish I'd have been there to give him a clap on the back in person. Well, I I, I, but, I took your persona I, I, for that for that interview, Grant. You did, I hope, you did. I, I, I noticed that, that and I, I and I no, I did appreciate it. But you know, Roger, I, I think that you know, golf really, to me, certainly like no other game, has that tradition, has that soul that I think Simon's point about was it, which was exactly the point I've been making to you since day one of yeah, this podcast, that if you are going to cater to an itinerant audience, they're going to be fickle. And yeah. I think I think a lot of these sports are at that point now. Uh, I think football is different. You can tinker with football because it's the club that people uh, love. And so the club will go on. On the PGA Tour, it's the players, and the players have careers and retire, or their form drops and they, and they disappear. So I think it is harder to tinker with golf and, and, and come up with cute formats. You can do it, but not. there are always going to be sideshow events. I think the PGA Tour, as it is, 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 is not going to change it. And I, for one, Rog, don't really want it to. I don't care how no, no, you don't. 20 something want three rounds or one round or you know six holes and you've got to run while we're in flip-flops or whatever it is you want to do with the game. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think any of that's necessary, to be honest with you. No, no, I hear you. Listen, we'll see how this develops. Greg Norman clearly was very angry and, you know, um, I don't think his tweet or his post was was 
measured. He clearly did that in anger, and we'll see how this story develops. Oh, yeah, we haven't even got to that. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah, no, but it's, I, I think, you know, you covered it. Uh, he, he, he obviously, you know, took a couple of blows there and lashed out a little bit, which I don't think was smart. Uh, but it, it's all in the same same stuff we're about to come on to, which is sport well, being... Well, I am just... just yeah. Yeah, before, before we okay. do that, just, just, just a word on that Greg Norman thing, and, and I think you touched on the point a few minutes ago before I got into my diatribe, and that is... Uh, the Saudis, right? You strip the Saudis out of this and you get some private equity money coming back with Greg Norman. Probably Greg Norman won't be the man to lead this thing now. But you come back with a Nick Faldo at the head of a private equity group, uh, you know, a respectable private equity group, if that's not an oxymoron, and you bring them in with a similar idea. And you know what? Maybe this thing does have legs. You know, maybe it, maybe it does have it legs. Does. And of course I, it does. I, 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 don't know, I don't know if Greg Norman's comments about the inability of the PGA Tour to actually ban its members from playing holds water. I mean, the lawyers will end up sorting that out. Yeah, but if he's yeah. right about that, then um, it makes a big difference. And, and I think that is tied to its charity status, is that they can't ban them from playing or they lose their charity status or something. Right? It's, it's something to do with that. I'm not, I'm not quite sure the legal ins and outs of it. But it will be interesting. Like I said, the Saudi, I believe the Saudi Golf League is dead and buried. But that's not to say another, having seen this, that another group won't think, you know, there's, there's something to be done here uh, as long as we don't chop up a journalist between now and launching the, 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 the league. You know, and, and, and as I was, I was about to say, that this takes us into what is the big theme um, that, that we've kind of like touched on a, a wee bit over recent months, which is um, sport as politics, sport as geopolitics, sport as sports washing. Um, uh, all of that, and that takes in Saudi. It's certainly taken in in the past Qatar and 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 the Arab Emirates, um, China. We've talked about consistently on this, uh, and now we have Russia, um, which I, I think they they have been very very um, active in using sport, always have done from when I was a kid, when you and I were kids and there was Olympics and Olga Corbett and things like that. They always have done, but in recent years, it's been more um, specific. That can be, you know, the relationships between Putin and Infantino at FIFA. It can be Gazprom and um, sponsoring, I think, both UEFA and a lot of clubs, etc., etc. It can be the oligarchs. Um, owning Chelsea and, and other clubs around. So what I want to talk to you about now, and I think you are one of the very few people that can talk about this with real authority. Um, in November, you wrote a very important piece in, in, in the kind of like geopolitical and finance community around, around uh, who Vladimir Putin was. Uh, it was called Putin on the Ritz. And it was an analysis of who this guy was, the chess game he was playing, how he was winning it, and how it all related um, from geopolitics to finance and, and even to, to, to other elements of narrative. Um, tell us about that before I follow on with another question afterwards, which is what's in my head along the lines of, you get yourself into a winning position, Vlad, and on the chessboard, you make an almighty blunder. Tell us a little bit about from November, your piece in November, who who he is, what he's trying to do, how he's trying to win the chess match, and what the hell he did last week. Yeah, look, uh, <clears throat> November seems a long time ago, right? I mean, it really, it really does in this context. You know, when I wrote the piece, the the thrust of it was was simple. It was let's put aside. The fact that Putin is a thug and a murderer and all those things, right? I think we can take that as read. And, and I charted his rise from you know, you low-level yep. KG, KGB operative in, in East Germany as a translator, you know, to, to retiring from KGB and you know getting into local politics and becoming president within about nine years or something ridiculous. Um, that doesn't happen to normal people. It doesn't happen to civil servants. It doesn't happen to bureaucrats, right? It's the sort of path, career path that murderous thugs take. So let's put that aside, right? Let's take that as read and so that we don't get into the whole Putin apologist, you know, you, yeah. you, you can't talk about a guy without without denouncing him. Um, I fully acknowledge that side of the thing. And I, th I think it's very you difficult did, for anyone to argue that. You did in November as well. That. 
people should yeah, read no, that. No, I did, I did, absolutely. absolutely. Um, but then you come to what he's doing um, and why and and at the time how, you know. And here's a, here's a guy who has looked around uh, the world. He's looked at the other, well, I say the other G8, but the G7 leaders. He's looked at, he's looked at, into 10 Downing Street and seen Boris Johnson there. He's looked at the White House and seen Joe Biden there. Merkel's on her way out and she's subsequently gone. He's looked at Canada and seen Justin Trudeau. He's looked down in Australia and seen Scott Morrison, empty suits all. Yeah. Um, and he's thought, you know what? If I'm going to do anything, now is the time. None of them are leaders. None of them have any kind of solid political base because of COVID which has basically made every incumbent um, fighting for their lives at whenever their next election is. He looked around and thought, you know what? Now's probably the time that I could make a move here and no one's really going to stop me. Now he has his hands around the throat of Europe's energy supplies through the, the pipelines. This is my point. Why Europe. did he even need to make a move, Grant? Well, let's come back to that, Rog, because it, okay. it's, it's, it is probably the, the, the most important question, right? Why? It is. Um, and he did have them over a barrel, right? He absolutely had them over a barrel, no pun An intended. Over a barrel, yeah. Yeah, exactly right. Um, and, and so, you know, all the stuff, the building up of the borders, the, the, um, the, the, the demands he made that he said he wouldn't back down unless he, they were all agreed to, you know, there was an awful lot of posturing going on there. And as my mate Ben Hunt wrote, you know, he was going in, it had, been, it had been decided weeks ago, the rest of it was just creating a narrative, and Ben's so sharp on this. And for people out there that don't follow Ben on Twitter, um, his handle is at Epsilon Theory, um, and he's just a fantastic observer of this stuff. Um, but, you know, that, that, that was very much all thought out, Rog. Now, he was in a position where he... The demands he made were essentially that, that Ukraine not be allowed into NATO, as, as has been promised by, by uh, the West, um, and that they agree that they will never admit Ukraine into, into NATO. Now, realistically speaking, and there's so many parts to this that we don't want to spend all night pulling it apart, but, you know, Ukraine essentially gave up their nuclear weapons um, in return for a NATO defence pledge, because uh, NATO didn't want Ukraine with nukes uh, after the Russian uh, the Russian the Berlin Wall fell, um, and they promised the Ukrainians that they would defend them in the face of a nuclear attack by Russia. It's important to say not not an attack, but a nuclear attack. If you read the wording carefully, that's what it says. Um, and Putin didn't want that. Now, the, the NATO don't need missiles in Ukraine. Right. Those the missiles we've got now can hit them from Poland, can hit them from London, can hit them from Dublin if they need to. They don't need them there. You know, this is this is essentially, if you look at the cold hard facts, it's very very similar to the the Cuban missile crisis in reverse yeah. when the Russians yeah, wanted yeah, to put missiles on on the U.S. doorstep. Right? It's it's the same thing. Um, you know, again, when 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 that was happening, Kennedy went to meet Khrushchev. Kennedy was sick. Um, he got sick when they were having the, the, the summit. I think it was in Vienna, if I remember rightly. Kennedy got sick, and Khrushchev saw that as a sign of weakness, that he was you know, you know, too sick to attend the first day of the summit. And he thought he'd chance his arm. That's what led him to, to call America's bluff and, and start the whole Cuban Missile Crisis. So you know, Vlad was in a great position. Now, why did he go in this last week? Um, part of it, I suspect, is exactly that. He just looks around and thinks they're weak and no one's going to stop me. And when he went in, on day one, the response from the West was absolutely pathetic. Yeah. And he had, he had called them perfectly. You know, they talked wishy-washy terms and, you know, we stand with Ukraine and we condemn this attack. And they had a very, very, very potent weapon at their disposal, which was twofold. One, they uh, sanctioned Russian, Russian oil and gas uh, shipments, and two, they shut Russian banks out of the SWIFT system, which is a, mm -hmm. a, an international payment system. That if you if you transmit dollars anywhere in the world, you have to go through the SWIFT system. Mm -hmm. and as energy is paid for in US dollars, that would cripple Russia. Um, but what do they do? The West declined to kick them out of SWIFT. You know, they, they, they talk about this as a declaration of war, but they're waiting for what before they before they take a, a stronger sanction measure? I mean, it's absolutely ridiculous. So. In the first couple of days of this, 
his calculus was absolutely right. If I go in, they're going to be too frightened to do the two things that would hurt me, which is which is cut off my oil and gas sales and sanction all my banks and kick them out of the SWIFT system. Now, we're three, four days in now, and one by one, the EU countries are falling into line about kicking them out of the SWIFT system. You know they're all worried about their own oil and gas supplies. Interestingly, they're talking about sanctioning the Russian Central Bank, which, again, for a whole lot of arcane reasons, is a much, much bigger problem for Putin, for Russians in general, and for the current and for the currency in particular. It's a, it's a huge move yep. and could, could cripple Russia very, very quickly. On the other hand, Putin is... <laughs> I mean, you've got to love his chutzpah in some ways. He's, he's saying that that is a declaration of war. You know, while he's standing with two feet in Kiev, he's saying that, that kicking him out of the SWIFT system is a declaration of war. So, look, it, it's a very complicated situation. I mean, it's despicable what he's done. Um, you know, a lot of innocent people are going to lose their lives unnecessarily. The, 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 the smart move for him, I think, is to, is to install a puppet regime in Ukraine which I'm sure he's going to try and do, um, and then retreat, leave the puppet regime in place. And, you know, in a year's time, the puppet regime applies, oh, yeah, we'd like to join the Russian Federation. Um, and away you go. That's that's how he wins. Um, but uh, from a couple of days ago where he looked to be in a strong position, I think his positioning is, uh, position is weakening by the hour by right the now, hour, which is, by the hour, which is, by which the is hour. good for all of us. Yeah, it is. It really is starting to weaken out. And if he gets embroiled in a in a, a guerrilla war in Kiev, uh, and if the protests at home keep getting stronger, and if they do take these moves, these financial moves in the SWIFT system for not just the Russian banks, but the central bank itself, he's going to be facing uh, an awful lot of pressure, which um, which is great. It's a shame it had to come as late as it has. Um, but we wait and watch, Roger. You know, none of us have any idea what's going on in his head. There are plenty of theories about you know him wanting to be the next Peter the Great and him reclaiming... Mm-hmm. Russia mm-hmm. as it used to be centuries ago and reclaiming its borders. and But who knows, right? We have no idea. We can just look at what's happening and try and figure out what it tells us about the people involved, what it tells us about the likely paths forward. And, um, you know, I, I think at this point now, unless he manages to, uh, to, find, to find the uh, Ukrainian uh, president who is just remarkable, you know, remarkable. here's a guy, here's a guy showing tremendous courage in the face of adversity. I mean, it's, you know, he's down there in full battle dress on the front line, sitting having tea with the soldiers. Uh, you know, w- when the West were offering to send him uh, an evacuation plane, I think the US was saying, we're going to evacuate That was you. a great line. That would be down said, in the history yeah, books. I, I, need, I need, yeah, exactly. I need ammunition, not a ride. I mean, it's just, yeah, you can't write line. this stuff, Rog, but, yeah. but look, cometh the hour, cometh the man, right? I mean, and, and here he is. And then you look at what happened with Biden and with Johnson and Morrison and Trudeau and all these empty suits, um, none of them had the balls that this guy had to stand up to Putin. And, um, you know, I, I, I mean, he's just, he's an extraordinary guy. It's an extraordinary situation. And, and I think the longer the Ukrainians can can hold him at bay, the swifter his uh, position of strength is going gonna, is gonna to weaken dramatically. And I, and I think if this goes on for another couple of days without him getting some kind of result in Kiev, he's, he's going to be under an awful lot of pressure. Yeah. Um, l- l- let me ask you something that I think is linked to this and, and, and does start taking us into the world of sport and media and, and, and valuations and, and everything like that, which does affect the world of sport. In November, you were talking about how in many ways um, Russia and their central bank had played a much smarter financial game with their monetary prop policy. Um, their debt to GDP ratio is, I think, is something like 17, 18%, which yeah, is nothing. Yeah. nothing. Um, they have, um, in, in a lot of ways, not gone into the whole uh, uh, money printing, I'll use that term instead of technical things like quantitative easing and things like that. Um he has built up his gold reserves, which are the kind of like the anti-fiat currency thing. Um, how do you think... He sold, this... he sold all his US treasuries as well, yeah, yeah, which yeah, is yeah, a really yeah. important point. But that's right. a really important point tonight. It is, it is. So, so what, what I'm saying this is we've said on this program two or three times, Grant, and this is the crux of it. We have said that the world, which means uh, media, which means sport, has lived in a world of low uh, interest rates for nearly 30 years. 
very, very low interest rates for the last 15 years. What is SWIFT, which people don't really understand, but what, let's say if all these things happen, that he starts cutting the Russians off here, the Russians have to react, um, how does that all affect this very, very delicate balance of the confidence game of the fe- the federal put, all, all of the fact that keeps interest rates as low as they are, because if all this goes and we go back to 5 to 10% interest rates, the game's a bogey, Grant. So talk us through how these dominoes fall. Well, look, one of the, one of the big problems of weaponizing SWIFT, um, yeah. and, I, and I talked about it in that piece back in November, he did. Uh, and look, if anyone watching this uh, wants a copy of it, just drop me drop me an email, grant at grant-williams.com, and I'll, I'll gladly send you a copy to read. But um, the danger of weaponizing Swift Rods is that the Russians and the Chinese and all the other uh, countries, Iran, uh, Turkey, who've potentially been threatened with sanctions in the past, have, since 2012, been building an alternative system agreeing bilateral trade agreements where they would sell commodities to each other in in their own currencies rather than going through the dollar, which is, is how the world has functioned yeah. um, for the last 60 odd years to now. So we- weaponizing SWIFT is actually a very potentially fraught thing to do because if they weaponize SWIFT and the Russians turn around and say, okay, we're going to stop selling our gas to Europe in dollars, we're going to start selling it to the Chinese in rubles or yuan or gold. It could it could happen gold. one or, crypto. or two or all three of those. Or crypto, yeah. Um, stable, stable coin backed by gold, it, let's it, say that. It, it basically puts a nail in the coffin, not the final nail, but it puts a nail in the coffin of the of the US dollar hegemony. Yeah. Now, if you have the biggest energy producer in the world, the most resource-rich country in the world, and the biggest consumer of resources trading directly and bypassing the dollar then that's a problem because they, they've already built the rails to allow other countries to do the same thing. And if they prove that those transmission uh, uh, rails can work, then it, it really takes away the big stick with which the US has been able to beat the world for, for quite some considerable amount of time. So it is a gamble. And I think that's one of the reasons why they were reluctant to use it initially. And I think the pushback has been so strong and the voice is so loud that they've kind of had to threaten them with this because it just looked so weak for them not to when this was obviously potentially the big threat. So, uh, look, if that happens, Rog, you know, we we could see all kinds of turbulence in currency markets. We could see currencies being sold. We could see interest rates having to be raised to attract capital as well exactly. as to fight inflation. Exactly. And look, as we've as we've spoken in the past on this show, if, if interest rates go up, as you said, to 5%, never mind 10%, if interest rates go up to 5%, then forget the financial world. The sporting world is in a world of hurt. There are so many leveraged entities, whether they're at club level, at league level. There is so much leverage in sport, and the, and the arrival of private equity obviously has, has, has kicked that onto a whole new level. That if money starts getting expensive to borrow uh, and more expensive none of these to roll projects, over, none of these projects work anymore. None. No, you go into no, your Excel spreadsheet and you change the, the discount rate from 1% to 5 and you have a, a world of red ink, a world yeah, of red ink. It, it's over. And look, the, the, and this is the thing, right? There will be buyers of these assets, but they will be nowhere near the prices last paid. And, you know, it, look, it, it's the kind of reset that the world needs with these inflated asset prices, frankly. Um, Not uh, sure sport you know, having, wants to having, hear that, Grant. <laughs> Not sure. No, no, it doesn't. Of course it doesn't. Of course it doesn't. Of course it doesn't. But look, we we all know that the prices being paid for these sporting franchises are ridiculous. They're utterly ridiculous. They they are. They only work in a world of zero cost of capital, Rods. And Uh, if we don't have that, and at some point we won't, then this whole house of cards is is going to come under tremendous pressure. And I I I for one don't think it's gonna it's gonna stand up to it. No. So again, I come back to, I mean, I've always thought in your piece in November, everybody should take Grant's offer up and and ask him for that. It's behind a paywall normally and rightly so, uh, but ask him for it. Vlad is a smart guy. You know, like he is a world-class strategist. I cannot get past the idea, Grant, that he just got emotional about this and has made a huge mistake. Because if you look at what's going on now, 
you know, like Gazprom issues with the sponsorships. He's even, and okay, it's a joke, but I'm making the point, he's been removed from the World Judo Federation Honorary President. You know, FIFA and World Cups are coming up. Uh, the Haas Formula One team. Owned, and then, of course, we've got Chelsea. And Abramovich tries to like, um, kind of like pull the wool over our eyes with this whole kind of like blind trust thing. We've been here before. Nobody's buying it. You've got the League Cup final today. What kind of reception are Chelsea going to get at that League Cup final today? You know? And then you see Rush. what's happening. Yeah. You're on your look, look, I was going to say, look, you're right about all this, but at the end of the day, doesn't matter. Sport doesn't matter at times like this. No one but is going to care. Grant, it does. You look it at the Chelsea rush. fans today. It doesn't. You look at the Chelsea fans today. They're not interested in all the things we've spent the last 20 minutes talking about. They're just automatically defending their club. And, 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 of course they are. But that's my point. It doesn't matter, Rog. Because if, if Chelsea gets sanctioned, who cares? Chelsea fans care. That's it. The fact that sport comes out and grandiosely says, oh, we, we stand with Ukraine and we're going to pull the Champions League final from Russia. Well, of course you are. What point are you trying to make? That, that you've done the right thing and you're stand-up guys because you pulled the, the, the Champions League final from St. Petersburg. Give me a break. It doesn't matter. I mean, the, in times like this, yes, all these guys are going to puff their chests out and they're all going to want to stand up and look like they're good guys and look like they're on the side of right and they're doing what they can to stuff. But you and I know full well the the handshakes will be back the envelopes will be back it's all going to come back again 100% so, so to, to see sports administrators particularly FIFA and UEFA particularly those guys to stand you know the, the, the Poland game against uh, Russia in the World Cup qualifiers is coming up um, and you've got this situation where the Polish players are talking about well if the game goes ahead we're just going to boycott it yeah. right well, yeah. of course it shouldn't go ahead. You're not going to get any praise for saying a country that's invaded another country, you know, we're going to stop them playing a football match. You know, sport is not important. It's important to us as fans. Well, well it's then, let me take moment, your Rush, point there and just... Let, let me take the... Okay, but then, right, you're right, but this is where it becomes incredibly difficult and I'm going to defend my fellow sports administrators because if, if I take your point now... There is more than a decent argument that I go to the EFL who run the, the League Cup and say, you cannot play it today. Just like the St. Petersburg thing. You can't play it today because Abramovich and, and Putin are joined at the help. They always have been. And it's, it's a, you know what I mean? It just goes on and on and on. Where do you stop? And, it's, and, and it's before you know it, the whole point. industry's gone. Well, no, the, the whole, whole industry is gone, gone Grant. No, because... The whole industry isn't gone. The whole industry isn't gone. Well, you, look, uh, it, look, it's not, Rog. It's not. I mean, it's it's uh, Fulham. I'd like to state for the record, are not owned by Russia. All right, they they'll still be standing when the smoke clears, Rog. Let me tell you that much. But but seriously, look, you're absolutely right about the Abramovich connection. It does look. It gets a little bit trickier there, right? Because de facto, he's a he's a He's a private citizen and his own money's in there. Now, anyone that does any work on it understands the connection, understands how he made his money. Uh, in fact, Matthew Syed put a great piece out in the Times uh, about this, talking about the history of Abramovich and Chelsea. But of course, at times like this, everybody comes out and starts wailing on Abramovich. They weren't doing that. There was no talk about Chelsea, potentially, if Russia goes to Ukraine, then Chelsea shouldn't play in the League Cup final, right? There was none of that talk around. Now, no. now this has happened... Everyone's looking for, okay, how do we stick it to the Russians? What ways do we have that we can hurt the Russians? But, Roger, yeah. I'm sorry. I'm telling you right now, uh, if you think that handing the League Cup to Liverpool makes one bit of poxy difference in this, it doesn't. And, it, and it, it's, you know, it's not even symbolic. Fine, you can do it, but it doesn't make a difference. It's not like that's going to hurt anybody or... Or, or do anything. I mean, it, it, sport is just irrelevant at times like this. It really is. The only sport that's relevant right now... Yeah, but so what you're saying... Mm, go on. Go on. No, what I was going to say is that... So then you get into value judgments about what can get played and what can't get played. So is it things that where Russia are playing as Russia or is it things that uh, clubs that are owned by Russians and a Russian regime, one's bad and one's okay... So there's somebody that's the arbiter of where the moral judgment is. Yeah. As a sports administrator, I'm telling you that is a world of pain, Grant. Yeah. A world of pain. Right, but okay, so let me turn it back on you, Rog. Let me turn it back on you. Yeah. How would you handle it? 
You're still the, the, the S, you're still the SPL chief, but let's no, let's say you're the let's say you're, you're head of FIFA now. This happens. Yeah. Or UEFA, sorry. Let's use UEFA. This happens. What do you do? What, you know, never mind what you end up being allowed to do or able to do. What's your gut tell you you should do right now? Right. This is what people don't understand. All these organisations are voting organisations. You don't have any power unless you've got votes. Right, but you're going to table. So, here's, you're, you're going to go into that meeting with the rest of the board and you're going to go, here's what I propose we do. Now we'll vote on it. What's that proposal? Uh, that's what's called putting me on the spot here. Yeah. Um, right. What would I, yeah, yeah. What would I do? Um, I think, and listen, I think I've got an element of strong morality in my life, but also I'm very much a pragmatist. Um, so I would be saying to my executive committee of UEFA this, look, uh, let's leave the morals aside just for one second, just for one second. Let's leave the morals aside. The zeitgeist, uh, the narrative is where it is today. Um, so I'm recommending that UEFA um, excludes all Ru Russian clubs and all Russian teams from our competitions from tomorrow. Yep. Right. Um, that, th luckily, that is also the moral answer. Exactly but it's right. the pragmatic answer. It's the pragmatic answer. You then hope that sport in some way can be the way that you get things back together. And that sounds incredibly bland and a little bit naive. But if you actually look at what's happened in the Middle East and the relationships between Israel and some of the Middle East countries, that happened through football. So I would be saying to the UEFA Executive Committee, let's make that stand. We're stopping it all. And we start reclaiming some branding and moral high ground from UEFA that we try and insert ourselves in here in some way, because I actually believe sport is more important than you're saying here. Um, you know, that takes us a little back to back to what Simon Barnes was saying. It's the most important of things that, that don't matter. Yeah. I actually think yeah. it does matter because at the end of the day, Grant, whichever way you cut all this geopolitics, it's about people living their lives, getting up at seven in the morning and going to bed at midnight and how they get on in life and all aspects of it. And a big part of what they do in, in those 18, 20 hours is leisure time. And sport is a big part of that. So, you know, I would love to think that sport that, as you rightly said, has been like dragged into all kinds of conflicts of interest and Faustian packs over these years. And it's not just Saudi, it's not just Russia, it's not just China. We've talked about this for four years, Grant. It's full of this stuff. There is a chance now for some of them to just say, stop. We are actually going to turn all of this around and we're actually going to become some kind of like moral arbiter. Because, you know, and again, this is the smart move because the zeitgeist is behind you. You could have a go at doing that, Grant. Okay, you'll get shot down. The politics will kill you. You know, the big boys all around the world will start squeezing you. You will realise that you're a small ant in the middle of this. But would it not be great to see FIFA, UEFA, the IOC, the EFL just say, we believe fans and the people we represent want this to be like this. Yeah, look, I, I, I couldn't agree more, Rich. And, and if you put that table, you table that in front of me, I'd vote for it in, in a second. And, and I think it's absolutely the right thing to do. However, you know, it, 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 it's very difficult to come up with a, a pushback against that. But as you say, the politics will kill it because money, right? Ultimately, money talks. That's, what, that's, what, that's what this is all going to be about. It's all going to be about money. And, you know, yes, you're right. All those people do get up and sport plays a big part in life. And all they do want is to get on with their lives. And, but they don't get that choice. You know, at times like this, Putin didn't ask them. I mean, there are there are thousands of Russians protesting all over the country now about this. They don't want to be in a war in Ukraine. I mean, most of them have relatives in Ukraine. You know, it's it's a ridiculous situation. Um, it is ridiculous. And a tragic I don't know why situation. he did it. I just can't work it out. Well, look, maybe maybe he's mad, Raj. Maybe he's mad. Maybe he's got some grand strategy. Uh, uh, who knows, right? Uh, who knows? I just think he's getting old. There's a whole thing about mortality. You know, what's my legacy? Peter well, the Great, look, I think, got, is they've correct. Got, they've got a huge demographic cliff as well. You know, Russia, if you if you look at the, the numbers, um, 
they don't have long before they're going to be really struggling to um, with their demographic pyramid. So there's some people will tell you that he had to go and do this to basically bring all the 18 to 50 year old men in Ukraine in as Russians because they they, I they need them. I, I, I don't, I don't know either. I, I don't know either if that's the right. It's it it, it, it it's possible, but not all he had probable. to do was wait. I mean, like he ha he had the Europe by the balls with that new pipeline. All he had to do was wait. And it would have just, through osmosis, all come in his direction. He would have taken Germany away and brought them closer to the east of Europe. And what does he do? He he wants to call somebody's bluffing a game of poker, and they call his bluff, and he says, well, I tell you what, I'm splashing the pot now. And what if Ukraine is? He splashed the pot. Well, and, Raj, and, and, you know... At this point in time, right, we are... No matter what, we are soon going to reach the negotiation stage of this, right? We there, are. There will be are. a ceasefire and there will be a negotiation. And then we'll hopefully see. Hopefully today. Yeah, hopefully today. Hopefully yesterday. I mean, look, but then we'll yeah. see. Then we'll see. Then we'll get a sense of whether there was any plan behind this. I, I, I'm, I'd be surprised if there wasn't. I mean, you know, the, the first casualty of war is all the plans you made beforehand, right? That's We, we all know that. Yeah. But I think before before saying that he's a lunatic and he's lost his mind, I'm, I'm curious to see if he's got a plan. Now, if you're right, he has lost his mind, the chances are he's going to be sent packing with his tail between his legs, well, and that would be a great I, thing for the yeah, world. Yeah, well, That would be a great yeah, thing for the I, world. I think, the I think the oligarchs aren't happy. I, I think, you know, like, um, I think he's, it's a, a huge blunder. I don't think it's madness. I think it's hubris, you know, and it's Very the possibly. same thing you get... With, with Phil and so many people, successful people, at one point they just think they're got, they're not just got a God complex, they're God themselves. And, 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 and I, I just think he's massively overplayed his hand. Yeah. Massively. It, it, I say, it looks and, that and, way. And, it definitely looks that way. Um, but, but time will tell, Rog. Uh, time will tell. But listen, we, um, we're running out of time. Yeah, and we, we ought up. to bring this back to, uh, we ought to bring this back to, um, Back to pure sport rather than sport and politics. Um, yeah. What you got? Well, no, I was going to ask you. I, 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 we've uh, we've had a chat with uh, our man Sean before this. Thanks, Sean, for doing this at short notice. By the way, you've done a fantastic yeah, job for us as mate. always on a Sunday. Um, and not only has he had to do this on a Sunday at short notice, he's also suffering the slings of arrows of being a Leeds fan, bleeding Rog. from a thousand cuts from yeah, being exactly a Leeds right. fan. So, so well, what, I could, what, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> What have I got? Well, I, um, you know, you know, I, I've always been a fan of Bielsa because I, I love people that, that are not so much the pragmatists in life. You know, I myself, I don't think I'm particularly pragmatic. Otherwise, I wouldn't say so many things so openly. Well, you it's did actually say you were, play. you did actually say you were pragmatic a while ago. So, so, so yeah, yeah. Should... Well, you know, it's all a contradiction. <laughs> it's all a contradiction. You get to my age, if you've not got two different personalities, there's something wrong. Um, I've, so I like Bielsa. I've always loved Bielsa. I think he's done to Leeds what he always does. He re-energizes re a tribe. Um, but I also believe that um, these kind of um, impact and purest, uh, absolutist uh, coaches have got a shelf life. And I'm old enough to have seen this happen a lot. I saw it with Saki, who got kicked out of Milan. I saw it with Zeman, who, um, despite all his amazing uh, results with Forja onwards, uh, never won anything. I've seen it many, many times. And those of us that were looking at Leeds from, I would say, even, you know, the start of the season, certainly before Christmas, you could see that they were done. You know, you could see that they were done. And I, I, I made a tweet about that. And then somebody says, uh, oh, you can see that's why you, you, you're not involved in football anymore or anything like that. And I said, I tell you what, this was last night. Tell you what, um, the smart move is that Leeds get rid of them on Sunday, tomorrow, today. And it seems like they have. Because Leeds cannot afford to go down. No, they no, cannot they absolutely afford can't. to go down. You know, they're sitting there with the 49ers that have got maybe, what, 40% now, maybe higher. Um, they can't go down. I, I don't think they'll come back. It's Sunderland writ large if Leeds go down. And what are you going to do? You're going to keep the, the, the romance because, you know, uh, Marcelo Bielsa is seen as God uh, when he's taken, you know, three, four goals in the first half hour every game because his players are out on their feet. You know, 
get rid of them today. Get rid of them today and try and save yourself because there's no glory in hanging on to a Messiah when you go into the championship in the EFL. And, you know, I'm, I'm thinking back to that poor girl, that, um, that, that journalist, the name escapes me, Karen something, uh, who said, I think a year ago, that Bielsa's team's always run out of juice and she got absolutely abused for saying what is clearly by the By Leeds reality. fans, yeah. Yeah, by Leeds fans. It comes back to Chelsea fans, Leeds fans. They don't care about any rationality. Fans will will rather poke their eyes out rather than admit that their team has done something wrong. I'd like to see somebody go to her and say, well, actually, uh, you were right. You were right. Um, so, you know, Leeds... Owned by the 49ers, which takes us into the whole American investors and sport thing. What did they do? They didn't hang around. And I think that is 100% the right decision. Yeah, Bielsa's gone while we're recording this, I think, the announcement's been made. So, um, you know, we were chatting beforehand. Oh, we were chatting beforehand and you, you know, you, you said the right thing is to get rid of him today. And uh, hey, presto, he's, uh, he's gone. And, you know, look, the favourite is um, Jesse Marsh, who, uh, or Marsh, sorry, at uh, the... Uh, LB Leipzig, yeah. RB Leipzig. Oh, oh, what do you think of that? All these, well, I like these guys. I like that whole Red Bull German uh, way of doing uh, football now. Um, Genoa, who we had on the podcast, bought by 777. They brought in one of these chaps with that same t- type of profile. You, it's all getting professionalized, man. And, and like, um, I think that is a very, very smart move. I like Leeds a lot. Obviously, it's owned by an Italian, so I've got a little bit. Um, and, and Leeds and Celtic back in the 70s were rivals. So I've always been close to Leeds, a one club city. Um, Marcello was great. It was great, but shelf life. Never fall in love with players and coaches. When their time has come, out that afternoon, say thank you, say that they'll always have a picture on the wall and get them out of there. ASAP. Yeah, I can't say it. I can't say it. Well, listen, Rose, before we go, I can't close this show without uh, one other quick goal, which I'm curious uh, to your thoughts on, and that is the stupendous result that Rangers had in the Europa League this week, knocking oh, no. uh, Borussia Dortmund, oh, no. oh, <laughs> oh, no. Dortmund out of the competition. Um what was it, 6-4 on aggregate, I think? Um, any uh, any thoughts on that? Yeah. Any thoughts on that? A, a well, yeah, I had a lot of thoughts. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I have a, a lot of thoughts on that, and sadly, I've expressed them, and I, I, I think I've, I've become certainly one of the most unpopular people with the Celtic fans, because, you know, for many years, while Celtic were winning quadruple trebles, I noticed that instead that their performance in Europe was declining every single year. And they always told me, basically, a little bit like Elon, you know, share price, they would just show me pictures of the trophies. And I always said, you know, trophies don't matter because whether you like it or not and you don't like it, outside and below Gretna, um, Scottish football is considered a pub league. So how can you show me a picture of a Scottish trophy and think that is some kind of bragging rights? And I did say this, you can go and find this tweet uh, two days ago. The Rangers' defeat of Borussia Dortmund is 10 times the value for that club and that brand than Celtic winning the League Cup two months ago. Now, I don't think I can go back to the East End in Glasgow and get out alive at this point, but it is the it is the fact that is an extraordinary result. I don't know how they did it, but... Um, Everybody in Europe took notice. Nobody noticed Celtic winning the Scottish League Cup. Yeah, no, fair point, fair point. Uh, and I apologise for making you have to say that into a microphone, but well done. That was, very, that was very fair of you, I have to say. Very fair, as always. Well, listen, mate, we have um, we have come to the end of yeah, uh, another great. Go on, go on. That was Thanks a lot of fun. Oh, mate, listen, it's it's always a, always a pleasure to do these things. For those of you listening at home, thanks for joining us live. And for those of you listening to the replay, Thanks for doing that as well. Hopefully, uh, things that we've talked about on this show will have improved by the time this goes out on Thursday. Um, 
I think it's safe to say that both our thoughts and prayers are with the people in Ukraine. Hopefully um, the situation calms down and cooler heads will prevail. Um, all that's left, I think, is a thank you, as I say, for listening to us, to thank Rog for uh, for doing this, to thank Sean and the guys at Entourage for putting this on for us at such short notice, which was uh, tremendously kind of you. Thanks, but Sean. By the way, by the way, Sean, um, Sean uh, is, is based um, in Sweden, but most of the development team from Entourage uh, were Ukrainian, are Ukrainian, and what we've had to do the last week to get them safe, you wouldn't believe. So the fact that they found time on a Sunday to do this is doubly thank you. Fantastic. You can follow us on Twitter if you don't do so already. You'll find us quite simply at Entertained R. That's the word A-R-E. You can find me at T-T-M-Y-G-H. And you can find myself at RPM Como, as in the lake. As in the lake. Mate, until next time, thanks a lot. Take care, mate. Bye-bye.